Uh, HSI is, really serves as the investigative arm for most of the Department of Homeland Security. My first assignment and where I actually spent most of my career as an, as an agent was in San Diego, California. You're listening to Derek Benner, former Executive Associate Director of Homeland Security Investigations and currently Managing Director of Thomson Reuters Special Services. Welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. The new face of support to law enforcement is really probably data science. My biggest challenge or missed opportunity, I think, looking at my old job was I knew how data rich we were as an agency. In this episode, we discuss the value of learning from others as a supervisor, HSI's shift in enforcing human trafficking, how to distinguish yourself for a federal law enforcement job, how data science is increasingly important in fraud investigations, and how Thomson Reuters Special Services is serving law enforcement. He is the former executive director of Homeland Security Investigations and currently the managing director of Thomson Reuters Special Services. Derek Benner, welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. Thanks, Robert. Appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Uh, it's been been great meeting with you on, on other occasions and look forward to, to our discussion. What is a former executive associate director of Homeland Security Investigations? What exactly is that? Yeah, it's a rather long-winded title, I guess. Essentially, the director of HSI, which is a one of the two or three main components of immigration and customs enforcement. Uh, HSI is, really serves as the investigative arm for most of the Department of Homeland Security. That position is obviously located in Washington, D.C. at at HSI headquarters. Why did you join federal law enforcement? Well, it was a bit of a journey, Robert. I mean, I grew up in a small town in Maine in a nice little community in the 70s and 80s. If you remember at that time, the significant anti-drug campaign was kind of the, the news of the day and how dangerous drugs and narcotics were to our communities and to our country. And, and that resonated with me in part. We also had some family friends that were state troopers. I had the opportunity to spend some time with law enforcement at an early age. And I think part of me, I think I was kind of an odd child to be interested in kind of the criminal phenomenon and particularly had a, a high sense of empathy for victims of crime growing up and felt really compelled to somehow be a part of the law enforcement community and investigate and try to mitigate the criminal impact in our communities and our country. And I don't know if a lot of people know what they want to do when they're in high school, but I definitely had a sense of where I wanted to go as an adult. So you want to join federal law enforcement because you watch too much Chips and Miami Vice? Yeah. <laughs> That's what I watched. <laughs> My first family vacation was to Washington, D.C. We drove from Maine, and I remember being on a tour at the FBI. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember as a teenager being on a tour of the FBI. It was, it, was, it was always cool. That was like a world-changing event for me because you know I didn't know a lot about federal law enforcement, but we obviously all knew what the FBI was from, from our exposure to like television and media time. And when I came back to my school... I got out the phone book and I looked for the nearest FBI office in Maine and I just called and asked to speak to a special agent in the FBI. I remember his name today. His name was Ronald Docks and he was one of a couple 
special agents in the Portland office. And I asked him to come to my high school and speak to my class about a career in federal law enforcement. He came and did it. Pretty cool, actually, to be a teenager and actually have the wherewithal to pick up the phone and, and invite a guest to your school. Well, I think maybe some of your listeners will be more surprised by the fact that I had to get a phone book out and look up in a phone book the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation. And uh, I will tell you this. No one goes to Washington, D.C. to go to the IRS building and say, can't, can I take a tour? It doesn't happen that way. Maybe the Bureau, but not, never the IRS office. The security guard yeah. look at you kind of weird going, you want to do what? <laughs> take a tour? Of the IRS? Yeah, right. It was such a dynamic experience because it was all about violent crime and drugs like bank robbers and the history of the FBI and organized crime. Of course, they had, and I don't know if they still have it now, but they had a live firing range. Yes, um, machine gun, something like that. Yeah, yeah, no, I was there. I was a teenager at the time and, and took the tour when I was like 15. My sense is they probably don't do that anymore, but it was a great experience for a impressionable kid who thought that law enforcement was a direction they wanted to go in. It actually shaped, you know, where I went to college. I decided to come to, I went to George Mason because of its proximity to to Washington, D.C. And I thought, well, if I'm in the area, then maybe I can be an intern or maybe I can work part-time in college or at least get some contacts or experience that would help me get into that field. You were pretty hardcore as a teenager then because I wasn't, I wasn't that brazen. So you got the job, which HSI, at the time wasn't HSI. What was it called? So I was a treasury guy like you, Robert. I started as a cooperative education student with the U.S. Customs Service, with Office of Investigations, which back in the late 80s, early 90s was part of treasury. And then so you become an 1811 gun toter? Special agent? Yeah, not right away. Once I graduated college and converted to a full-time customs, I was a customs inspector for the first three years of my time at customs. And then after that, I became a special agent with customs. So you go to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in in Georgia? Twice. Twice, yeah. At least uh, one time for the uh, customs agent and the second time for the 1811 training? Yeah, and I think I figured out I've spent about a year and a half of my entire life at Fletzy through various basic training, advanced training, and of course, those two separate academies. Yeah, well, anybody who's in the audience who doesn't understand what Fletzy means, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, it is a training center outside of Brunswick, Georgia, which is the southern tip of Georgia. It is hot, it is flat, it is sandy, a beach, but not close to the beach but you have to drive to the beach. It's no resort area, let's put it that way. It's an old Navy base, I believe, at one time back in the 70s or 60s, something like that. Yeah, and when we went through, if you saw Fletzy today, uh, I was there a couple of years ago in my old job. It's really turned into a state-of-the-art facility compared to what it looked like when you and I went, where all the, the ranges were outside and attacked by swarms of gnats and... Sandflies, uh, that type of thing. Sand oh, yeah. Flies. Yeah, it's like uh, 100% humidity and it's it's 90 degrees outside. The FBI Academy was always talked about, like the village at the uh, Hogan's Alley. Or, oh, yeah. So they've built a, an entire network of those facilities at Fletzy now, where you can do students and trainees can go through pretty real life scenarios. They have a town, they have townhouses, they have duplexes, they have uh, multi-level houses. I mean, they have neighbor. It literally looks like a small neighborhood with yeah, uh, pawn shops and, and courthouse. Oh yeah. And everything's rigged up with cameras and audio and video. When I went through uh training teaching down there, it was, they were starting to build it and it was just, 
it was great because you could anything you can think of in real life, they could do. You could go out there, let's go, you know, let's go do a search warrant on an apartment complex. Uh, okay, let's go do a search warrant in this neighborhood. And it was just everything is this furniture was already there. It, it was great. The, you know, the the glass, not real bullets, but what do you call those things? It's like the white simunitions. Simunitions, yeah, but it was it was yeah, there were glasses. It wasn't really paint, it was something else. I forgot what it was called. Airsoft. That's what it is. Airsoft. Yeah, you could use airsoft and that type. It was just it's just fantastic. And there's a mock-up jet down there to where you can do training when it comes to terrorism, that type of thing, or someone trying to take over a uh, an airline. You can do all that. If you've ever done that one, that's actually pretty interesting. Almost like a Disneyland for law enforcement folks. It's fun to be a part of. Certainly a different experience than you and I went through early on. It took them 15, 20 years to really make it really nice. <laughs> and by the time it gets up to that point, you really can't enjoy it because like, man, back in the day it was a cinder block bedroom, very rustic college dormitory type of setting. So we received training at Fletzy, came out as 1911. Let's talk about that. What kind of cases did you work when you were a special agent? My first assignment and where I actually spent most of my career as an, as an agent was in San Diego, California, a border office. Back in the customs days, a lot of our work was generated by seizures of narcotics and contraband at the border by what would now be referred to as Customs and Border Protection officers at the ports of entry and Border Patrol in between the ports of entry. So primarily, 80% of my experience was in narcotics. So you're on a border town doing narcotics investigations? That was both kind of land border investigations. And then I spent several years in a maritime narcotic smuggling unit when the phenomenon changes as cartels adapt to law enforcement capabilities at the border. There was a significant increase at the time of small craft, rigid hull inflatables, jet skis coming up the coastline at night with narcotics, fairly good sized quantities at a time and landing on a beach. And then they're met by an offload crew. And that was a pretty exciting time. Probably one of the best few years in my career because it was it was one of those seven days a week, all hours of the night kind of. There's always work. Uh, There's never a downtime. Yeah. It was actually a HIDA task force, which was great as a new agent to be in a HIDA task force because you get to work with so many other agents and officers from other organizations. Working with Border Patrol and DEA, we had an IRS agent on our task force. But the coolest part for as a new agent and just trying to learn the craft of in being an investigator or being a, in law enforcement was working with all the, of our state and local partners, mm -hmm. who many of them had years and years of experience on the streets and doing in, as detectives. And I learned more in my first two years working with those folks than I did in probably the next 10 years, the most fun times of my time as a special agent. Then you get into management, which is always a different, <laughs> which is always a different skill set needed to deal with versus uh, putting boots on the ground and actually putting handcuffs on people. So how was that experience working your way up to executive associate director of Homeland Security? I guess sometimes in careers, like things happen to you that you don't plan for. I did work in a very big office. San Diego was one of the bigger offices for customs. And then after DHS was created and we became HSI, essentially, or initially ICE Office of Investigations, uh, we, got, we, we grew quite a bit. When I became a group supervisor, I stayed right in San Diego and, and got to continue working narcotics and money laundering 
working in one of our undercover groups. So that was probably the best job I ever had in my career, but it was probably actually without a doubt, the toughest job I ever had in my career. Because you get it from both ends. You get it from the top telling you what to do, and you get the bottom trying to resist whatever the, the top's trying to tell you what to do. You got to deal with both the you're – like, you're in between. You're in between the agents and, and management, and it's kind of difficult sometimes to be in that position. Yeah, and if you can navigate those dynamics, I felt it was the most fun I ever had in almost 30 years, but it was also – probably the hardest job I had in 30 years. And probably because of that dynamic, all of a sudden, you know, you're leading a group or a squad of typically newer agents for our office because that a lot of our new agents came to the border offices Mm -hmm. um, initially. That was just how they hired people. And when you're out doing operations and making decisions, you're the only one out there. Your, Your ASAC's not out there. No. Telling you to go, don't go, or do this, don't do this. And I remember days when we're doing control deliveries or uh, surveillances when things aren't going well. We barely had cell phones at the time. So there's no one to even call. You have to make a decision, and hopefully it's a good decision and a well-thought-out position, whether it goes bad or right. Be able to articulate your position about what I did and why I did it, even though it turned out great or it may have turned out bad. But it was rational, hopefully. So my approach was was to really just leverage the experience of the two or three senior special agents that I had in my group that had done a lot of things in their career. And for the good of the of the group, just tried to be inclusive and understand all of the, the dynamics before, you know, making decisions like that. And there's no worse feeling than being out on a controlled delivery. And anyone that's done them knows that there are times when things go bad, particularly Maybe we get outsmarted by uh, surveillance, and next thing you know, you're look, frantically searching a car of narcotics that, that slipped away. Some people in the audience probably may or may not understand that a lot of times what Derek was talking about is the most experienced guy is not the most senior guy, as in the person with the most stripes or the person with the, with the, with the fancy title. Sometimes the most experienced person is the guy who's been doing it for 20 years who happens not to be a manager, but the manager may be I only have 10 years experience, but then he's got somebody he's working with that 20 years experience doing this stuff over and over and over again. Smart manager would defer to someone going, okay, how do you, what's the best way to handle this? Versus just saying, well, I'm the boss, therefore I'm making a, you know, I'm making a decision without input. Yeah. Ultimately, the, the manager is responsible, but a smart manager will make sure that, that they have good input before the final decision is made, is my point. I don't know how I arrived at that conclusion. Thank God I did. It wasn't it, because it shaped kind of the way kind of my leadership perspective for other jobs years later, leveraging that type of experience and input is really better for everybody and usually end up at a much better place. How was the experience going all the way up to the very top? What were some of the obstacles that you that you have to deal with? I had the opportunity to later after a, a headquarters tour in 2007 and eight to go back to the field um, actually back to my my original office in San Diego and, and serve as the special agent in charge. And that was probably the second best job I ever had in my career, um, next to being um, a group supervisor. And I was so happy to, to stay there and, and lead that office and was hoping to do that for the rest of my career. But as you know, Robert, federal law enforcement uh, mobility is one of those things sometimes you can't avoid when vacancies become a factor, 
uh, at headquarters again, the agency tends to to start moving people around to fill positions. So after about three and a half years, I, I got the, the call from headquarters to come back. And I truly loved what I was doing out in the field and but tried to be positive about it and figure like, well, then if I can't do the job out here, then at least I can support our frontline operators from headquarters and, and go in with a mm-hmm. mindset of, I'm here in D.C. to support the folks that do the job every day. Sometimes that perspective, you can forget it and get wrapped up in the the beltway dynamics of policy and budgets and, and all the other things that can tend to take your focus off of why we're really there, which is to get resources and capabilities and support to the people that are doing executing the mission. Spent some time as the assistant director for uh, domestic operations, where I got to be really close to the mission and and the, our leadership in the field that was leading those missions. And having been to to DC in headquarters once before, I understood that there's a lot of other dynamics that you can't necessarily control every day. Our mission at the time was on the immigration side was um, really in the spotlight. That was a a challenging dynamic to to kind of ebb and flow with the different priorities and how to communicate those to the front lines. You know, I mean, HSI is a 10,000 person organization. How do we build some understanding around the shift in priorities of for investigations and enforcement in certain areas and translate that into something that people understand like, okay, this is what you want us to do. Let us go and, and do it because we're the expert. The shifts in mission priorities probably were one of the most challenging because they were pretty stark in contrast from from year to year, depending on what was going on uh, politically. So when it comes to like the immigration, it's like the stop the immigration at the border or the housing of the immigration or uh, or the enforcement of the immigration. Once they're just like a catch and release program in some ways, you catch them and then yeah, you got to make sure they get into court, you know, some type of immigration court. Is that what you're talking about yeah, regarding I mean, that's, immigration? That's part of it, Robert. I mean, the, the big thing for, for HSI was we were focused on the criminal investigation aspect of all types of different crimes, right? We had a very broad authority, very broad framework because where we derived our authority and investigative programs was the international border. So illicit trade, travel, illicit finance, if it touches an international border, then then we had jurisdiction. So while a majority of our work was in narcotics and money laundering, another significant aspect of our work was in transnational gangs, human trafficking, human smuggling, trade fraud, intellectual property, um, national security when it comes to illicit travel and illicit trade. Our focus in the immigration realm was identifying and dismantling criminal smuggling organizations that were smuggling and engaged in human trafficking. So we tried to stay very focused into that criminal investigative space and realizing that these are fairly sophisticated cartels of smugglers that are engaged in the exploitation of migrants in many cases. And of course, in the space of human trafficking and forced labor, one of our largest program areas involved in the exploitation of people. And so that was really our focus came to the the immigration portfolio. When we talk about human trafficking and forced labor, what we're just, are you discussing the 
oh, I can get you into the United States. It'll cost you, let's say, $5,000, $10,000. But then you got to work for me and work it off. And you got to go out there and pick tomatoes. Is that and live in this live in this hut or this tent until you pay it off? Is that is that what we're talking about? Yeah. That yeah, type of stuff? Labor, you know, essentially modern slavery. There, there is a smuggling component to on the front end. We just think about, of, you know, people getting from point A to point B. But then the trafficking starts, you know, in many cases shortly thereafter, where all of the false promises of employment or opportunity or are quickly vanish. And you've got organizations of people that withhold identity documents. They force people to live in horrific conditions. They transport, they control their movement to and from places of work. As employees, they're treated entirely differently than other employees, often doing dangerous jobs without the proper equipment and training. In terms of even worse, of other forms of exploitation, in say, for example, the illicit massage business industry or sex trafficking, even more insidious and disgusting just by itself, the entire cycle is based on exploiting people who are vulnerable, who have hopes and dreams and are promised certain things and then take a chance and then find themselves in these horrific situations. And so that was really our focus, was my focus for for the agency is that type of work. And then also transnational gangs, such as like MS-13 and others that come into our communities and engage in sex trafficking, narcotic sales, and, and actually crimes of violence uh, around the country. Right. So those were really kind of the two areas that we stayed true to, and no matter what the immigration priorities were, because I think everybody agreed that immigration authorities are really a fantastic tool in combating transnational crime. Gives you a wider array of potential charges and potential opportunity to get bad actors out of our communities or, or to dismantle entire organizations. It was nice to have both the traditional customs authorities, uh, Title 18 and Title 19, but also to have Title 8 authorities at the same time was really beneficial to the mission. I had a case one time. It was Timber, state of Alabama. And there were allegations of forced slavery because literally the people working at the timber mill, anybody know about a timber mill, people go out there and literally clear cut land with pine, that type of stuff, right? And it's very dangerous and you you grab it and then you got to prepare it and send it off to some type of sawmill. But that's it's all very labor intensive, dangerous work. And literally they were bringing people in, living in squalid trailers almost like sleeping in shifts. I mean, there are like 20 people in a small trailer. I mean, it's just like you can't stay there. A trailer that's that's manufactured to hold three bedrooms and that's it max, right? All of a sudden, it's got 20 people living in there. One of the issues was proving whether or not these people were wanted to be there yeah. <laughs> or yeah. forced to be there. It was difficult. Ultimately, the case got closed just because, number one, to find the witnesses. Number two is people who cooperate. And then number three is... Are you here because you're being forced to be here, or are you here because you like sleeping in shifts with 20 other people in a, in a trailer? That's what it, what it comes down to. One of the things I think that HSI got really good at and did it very early on was understanding that can't address these these types of investigations through just the, the criminal investigative mindset. You really got to take a victim-centered approach and figure out how you know rescue victims first and then 
sometimes maybe the criminal case comes second. And that's true in many forms of human trafficking, sex trafficking, labor, forced labor. It's a different perspective than a special agent is trained to do in terms of like interviews. And that is so true because when I was doing the investigation, I was more interested in following the money. Where did the money come from? Where did the money to? Is it violating tax laws or any money laundering laws? What made it dirty was the forced labor component. Yeah. But that was kind of like something I had to prove in order to prove the money laundering and, and see stuff. But other than that, my focus wasn't really on the 20 people sleeping in the in the same trailer as much as having them prove to me that it was illegal, you know, illegal proceed. Yeah, and I think I think that's changed a lot, especially over the last five years where I mean we we built a victim assistance program and hired and trained victim assistance specialists and forensic interviewers for each of our field offices. And so what they do is they bring a whole different perspective to identifying victims, providing resources working with NGOs and, and prosecutors to to provide, you know, support and recovery. And I know a lot of agencies are doing that now and and we should be. You and I have had several discussions about fraud and scams. The victims of frauds and scams from criminal organizations, that's a an area where a, it's grossly underreported in terms of people being scammed or or being victims of a of a fraud scheme. Those can be devastating impacts to people's lives. And typically, in our experience, Robert, you know that these organizations target vulnerable populations for that very reason, with very sophisticated types of schemes. We've kind of started to shift our victim assistance program to into other areas of crime, in particular fraud and scams, because of how devastating those crimes can be to people's lives. If someone is interested in a career which HSI, particularly gun-toting, law enforcement side of it, follow-the-money type of career, what should they bring to the table at the interview or at the application process? The first thing I would say is be incredibly persistent. If someone is driven to be in federal law enforcement, keep your aperture really wide in the beginning don't get too focused on a particular maybe agency or or mission set. The key, as you know, Robert, is getting in, getting in the door and getting some experience and then start to, to fine tune your career goals with particular types of crime you want to work or particular agency. Every 1811 or every federal agent, special agent out there, except for maybe like one or two agencies, they all go through the same training. So once you go through the 13 weeks, they're all got the same base training. Everybody gets the same stuff. And then after that, it's kind of like specialized. So for, for, so for the most part, once you get in, you're in. Everybody knows what you do. Now you right. just got to learn maybe the aspect of HSI versus IRS versus U.S. Marshals or whatever else they're doing. Yeah. Or Secret Service. I would focus on the things that agencies are looking for right now, which is really diverse experience. They're looking for people with language skills. They're looking for people that have background in, in the financial industry or in the legal fields or uh, specialized experience or, or education beyond just kind of the what I would say a law enforcement major. Because mm -hmm. I think most federal agencies will tell you, we'll teach you, we'll train you how to be an investigator. We'll train you how to be a, a, a cop, right? But what you bring to the table with your education and experience from these other sectors is really important to, to the mission. And I know we were always looking for 
people that had accounting or forensic accounting experience or certain types of expertise in law. Language capability is is true asset. I've had said, well, I'm, I'm not really that experienced, you know, with law enforcement. I was never, I never worked for a state and local agency. I was never a police officer. And it's like, well, that's fine. We'll teach you how to do that. You're, you're going to spend six to eight months doing nothing but that. Don't let that be a roadblock and don't be afraid to keep your aperture wide open in terms of opportunities to get into that field. It might not be your first preference, but it's a long career and there's a ton of opportunity once you get in the door and get on board with a with an agency. If you decide to jump from one agency to another and you go from HSI to IRS or U.S. Marshal, whatever, you pick your agency once you get in the door, you got five years experience and you said, I'm going to switch to agencies. When you go to that interview, you kind of, they kind of already know what you do. I mean, you kind of, you can already, you already speak the language. Now I just got to figure out exactly where you fit in that yeah. mission for that particular agency. But for the most part, they, they already know that you know how to do arrest warrants and search warrants. And you probably got some good stories about how you overcome this obstacle and that, that, that obstacle. I would agree with you 100%. I had a, conversation with about a year or two ago with an individual who's going to college. They want to get into law enforcement. All right, what do you want to do? I'm going to become a federal law enforcement officer. Okay, fine. Well, I'm double majoring in business and Spanish. I was like, well, okay, that's fine. On the business side, I got no problem at all. I said, why are you double majoring? Well, because I want to, you know, I said, well, how about just taking a year or two off, going to South America somewhere, Mm -hmm. learn the language, come back. They don't care about your degree in Spanish. If you go out there and say, you know what, I spent like some of the Mormon shirts do, you know, they go out there to a foreign foreign country for two years. If you can go out there and say, oh, I speak fluent Spanish, and whatever, they don't care about your degree. What skill set do you bring to the table? You know, I speak Spanish. Okay, fantastic. Or Thai or what? You know, pick your language, whatever it is. But yeah, the, the the skill sets are definitely needed. Anybody you can, anybody can learn how to do this job for being an eighteen eleven or being a federal law enforcement officer. But what do you bring to the table? That's a skill set that's needed by that agency in particular is always yeah. is always a plus. We yep. focused a lot on diversity of experience, diversity of background. Look, we used to put out vacancy announcements, Robert, for lateral eighteen elevens from other agencies, which I'd love to bring in a Secret Service agent or an IRS agent or DEA, whatever. Come and you know that was great. But we also like to recruit the other end of the spectrum, people that were finishing up their education and maybe they're they were finishing up a, an advanced degree and that mix so diversity i think is a big part of it and the more you can separate yourself from the from the rest of the pool of applicants out there with that diversity mindset and all the stuff that you bring as an individual i think increases your chances exponentially yep i would agree i would agree with 100% so you left HSI uh, about nine months ago mm. or 10 months ago. The administration changed and you joined Thompson Reuters Special Services. What is, or TRSS, mm. what does TRSS do and how does it help in fighting fraud? You kind of know when it's time. And I, and I felt like it was after 29 and a half years and a job that 85% of the, the, those years, I absolutely loved what I was doing. I feel very lucky to to have that experience for for that long in a job where I just absolutely loved the mission and the people and the community. But you just know when it's 
maybe time to move on and felt that way. And I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do and what it would look like. I felt like I wanted to stay connected to the broader law enforcement community in some way or the national security community in some way. And so TRSS proved to be that kind of opportunity where I could still be involved in the mission, but just from a different way and more in terms of providing creative solutions for operators, tools and and services that will enhance the mission, make investigators and operators' lives easier and, and more effective, and hopefully bringing together the three things that I think we do pretty well at TRSS, which is technology, data, and people in one package that provides uplift to some of the challenges that law enforcement is dealing with today. And I'll you know, we talked about our early careers when we didn't have cell phones or even computers for that matter. Most cases, you know, you ended up sharing a computer in an office with five other agents. Well, now we were fancy with the IRS. We had our own laptops. Oh, just want to let you know. <laughs> <laughs> I should have known. Well, it's because you were treasury. <laughs> That's right. Can't uh, share a spreadsheet. Yeah, no, we had the green screen, you know, dummy terminals. Uh, and a lot of typewriters in my, my first few years. But look at the the advances in technology for law enforcement. It's been fantastic. It's been great, right? We've got all these tools and capabilities now that data sets and, and analytical platforms, information sharing platforms that we never had before. But guess who also has that technology too? The criminals, the transnational criminal organizations, the international fraud networks, They're leveraging technology probably even better than law enforcement is right now. They're utilizing the dark web. They're sharing information at a rate that's probably greater than what we're used to. And so what comes with that is a gap between data and analytics and being able to maximize all of the available data that investigators have at their disposal. And also dealing with the amount of data that you get when you serve subpoenas and search warrants, and it's terabytes of information. Think about bank records and you think about trade data, or you think about just what people have on their computers and their phones when you serve a search warrant to get that information. So so the challenges for law enforcement is how do we deal with the big data that we're faced with every day and how do we leverage it in a smart and effective way that helps the operators build out bigger networks and have greater consequences for the for these criminal organizations. The new face of support to law enforcement is really probably data science. Most criminal investigators don't come to the job with a data science background. Data scientists can work side by side with operators and help them make sense of huge data silos they've got in their possession and they're trying to tell a story about their investigation and they're trying to make sense out of it. The amount of data is overwhelming. Give me an example of different data sets coming together and you kind of like putting the pieces of the puzzle together that, that, that make a clear picture. When you say data sets, what are we talking about? How are you putting it all together where it's accessible and you can analyze it? So for example, like public records capabilities or open source capabilities, numerous data streams that are out there that would be very difficult to acquire all of them as a government entity, I think, because of the, the expense of acquiring different data sets that are, would be available commercially. And so if you can combine them all into a resource 
with a, an analyst or a data scientist, then you team that up with what the law enforcement operator has in their, at their disposal, and then figure out how does that apply to a problem set or to a particular investigation. Uh, COVID fraud. Looking at the initially when the pandemic hit, one of the first types of COVID fraud was counterfeit substandard and unapproved merchandise, PPE, for example, or therapeutics. Every, the supply chain was stressed, so people were trying to get masks and gloves and hand sanitizer. Almost overnight, the legitimate supply chain was stressed to a point where it couldn't keep up, and that's where the criminal element filled that void. Companies posing as legitimate vendors who were selling, in many cases, selling counterfeit or unapproved devices or material, or in some cases, just stealing money from other entities who were just looking to buy this stuff. And so when you look at the type of international and global movement of these products, you've got a lot of different entities associated with that, particularly if you look at businesses. So if a business is representing itself as being able to provide these products, well, was the business just started yesterday or last week or two weeks ago? What's behind this? And, and that's all available information. So what you could do is you could take what the state may have regarding when it was incorporated, how it was incorporated, who incorporated it, and you marry that data with maybe the payment plan or or you order something and you can kind of like figure out, okay, is this company even legitimate or not? Is that what you're talking about? Right. And then that also applied to stimulus fraud. Once the government started the stimulus programs like Triple P and others, that same tactic was used. People created fake businesses with fake payrolls and fake employee lists. And obviously there was an, a sense of urgency to get these programs up and running and provide the much needed support to, you know, we talk about vulnerable populations a lot. During COVID, I think the scope of vulnerable people expanded exponentially because almost immediately, and I'm sure you saw it too be, while you were still with IRS, the number of people and organizations that were trying to steal that money, essentially. I can sort of give you an example. What we did in our investigations is that we would take the application process and figure out who's asking for it, where's the money going to being direct deposited, and the corporation and how many employees it supposedly had. And there's supposed to be some type of mechanism where you can compare that application to reality. In other words, how many applications have the same address? I mean, it's, it's kind of simple, right? If, if you have a, you know, 100 applications all going to the same farm, supposedly in South Dakota, that's supposed to be an apple farm. I, I don't know if it's apple farms in South Dakota or not. I, the point being is that since it's apple farm is trying to get 100 applications in the location, but it, it's it's a different corporation for every farm. But you can look at it going, that's a problem because you can compare the application to the address and then get on Google and find the address. Like, no, there's no, no apple farm there. Only is there is maybe some cattle. But then it's like, why is 100 up? And why is it always, you know, one million bucks? Or pick your your common denominator, and that's how we would look at some of that stuff. Or the bank accounts are similar or the same. It's always we're asking when to go to, you know, the same account. That type thing. Like you know, very good and well, that's not correct. So is that what you're talking about regarding some of these data sets? Is helping 
law enforcement agencies determine what's fraudulent, what's not fraudulent? The real question is, Robert, how do you get to where in the scenario that you described when you're starting with one or two million unique records or beneficiaries or people or companies? And traditionally, we attack it from like, where's the low hanging fruit? Where can I find some just with a cursory analysis? And really, that example is on the front end is how do we build a repeatable system leveraging an analytical platform, natural language processing, and some other unique data sets to ingest those one or two million records and build out a network and visualize and graph it and be like, well, this is interesting. Why are there 550 beneficiaries of this program connected to this address in a state that's not even connected to where the program is? So now you've given the investigator an opportunity to apply their time and resources against the bigger impact threat rather than just playing whack-a-mole, which is what we do a lot in fraud and benefit programs. We play whack-a-mole. It's a pretty good representation of what goes on, yes. So there's, so there's all this great data that states have and the federal government has in terms of whether it's in Medicare, whether it's unemployment insurance, whether it's triple P, of all of these entities, there's unique tools and capabilities that are out here that can actually ingest it, organize it, apply other data against it, and build out and visualize the worst of the worst. So is TRS just sitting down and brainstorming, saying, hey, we can fix this problem, here's how we can fix it, and then try to sell it to the government? Is that how it works? Or does the government come to TRSS and say, hey, we have a problem. What can you do to fix it? How does that work? I'd say it's a little bit of both. We obviously work in the space already. Crime changes, tactics change. And so we bring creative tools and data to different problem sets. And a lot of times we can find that some of these tools are repeatable against or can be utilized against multiple different types of schemes, whether it's trade-based or whether it's uh, benefit fraud-based. It could be looking at supply chain. It could be entity risk analysis. You plug in different capabilities to customize a solution that will be helpful to the mission. Okay. So TRSS is just a mechanism where they help mitigate the risk of fraud. It's even kind of higher level than that, Robert. It's, and it could be, we could be working in, in the human trafficking space. It's really about building out criminal networks, no matter what they're doing. My biggest challenge or missed opportunity, I think, looking at my old job was I knew how data rich we were as an agency. We had global trade data. We had global travel data. We had all of the financial access that you're familiar with. One of the things that we would always look at would be just international border crossings about yeah. uh, people with passports. And frankly, I would do it the old-fashioned way, I guess. I would sit there and say, okay, I know this person's traveling from point A to point B and coming back. Does this person have a travel companion? You know, sometimes people bring their girlfriends, boyfriends, you name it, or a business partner, right? So every time I would figure out when someone's leaving and going, I always would look for common names in the same manifest of the airplane just to see whether or not I could find somebody who I could go talk to who may be a low-hanging fruit who could tell me what, what the truth is. You know, I want to find that girlfriend or that wife that are in a different name, that type thing. Imagine being able to do that at scale and automate it and make it repeatable. Imagine how much... Great. If I had that access to that, yeah. And that's really where we help out in these missions is doing that kind of bringing unique data, bringing in data scientists and system and data, data engineers that can actually build a capability on the fly 
to address that specific problem set that you just described. Looking back at your career, what was the biggest mistake or lost opportunity that you have? What would you have done differently? Or may I really screwed up on this one? There's there's a lot of things I would have done differently. I think, <laughs> you know, you know, one of the things I wish I'd done as a as a younger agent is I wish I'd spent some time in some different offices and different sized offices around the country. And I spent most of my career in one office, kind of back and forth. I was wondered what it would be like to work in a smaller office, maybe the kind of the heart of the country in other places. So that was just kind of uh, the things I, I wish I'd done. The problem is once you get started, life happens and things kind of your opportunities kind of narrow as you make decisions about what you're going to do and, and how mobile you are. And there's also the family considerations. If you're married you're, and you got kids, your wife does, or you know your wife and your kids probably don't want to be moving every two years just for kicks and giggles because you want to go do something different. It's there. There's a lot of emotional and financial implications that have to be taken consideration. If you're single, yeah, it's not a big deal. But yeah. when you got family, it becomes uh there's a there's an added extra dynamic to this decision making. All right, you ready for the final four questions? Sure. Final four. Derek, what is your biggest motivation now? You've you did a career in HSI and now working for uh, Thomson Reuters Special Services. What's your biggest motivation now? I hope to still contribute in some way to, to the broader law enforcement community. I'm having a lot of fun working with the Noble. And I, I got to meet Ian Mitchell a little over two years ago. I was speaking at a SAS conference and I was talking about my experience and our agency's experience in building an innovation lab was really aimed at tackling the things that we just talked about, being data rich and analytically poor and recognizing right. that we've got all this opportunity and great data, but we just don't have the functionality and the expertise to use it in an effective way to, mm -hmm. to leverage against building out bigger criminal networks. And that really bothered me. So I found some incredibly talented HSI agents from around the country that had this expertise. And we started down this path of building an innovation lab, which is fully built and operational now. Uh, we did the ribbon cutting uh, right before I, I retired. And it's awesome to watch this agency build their own tools using data science and analytics and bringing in data from other sources outside of government and making them available to investigators around the world. So I'm talking about that and, and Ian approaches me afterwards and he starts telling me about this idea that he has called the Noble. And it hadn't been started yet, but he clearly had thought it out. Law enforcement and financial services and technology sector together to help fight crimes of exploitation, in particular from a financial standpoint, particularly human trafficking, child exploitation and fraud and scams against vulnerable mm -hmm. populations. And, and I was immediately interested because this was like something totally new. And I thought it was a very unique idea of like, yeah, let's bring all of the financial services people, leaders together with law enforcement. And how do we build things that fills the gap of information sharing and the confusion between the regulators and the enforcers. And I immediately kind of was like, yeah, I'm interested. Like, how can I help? He since then has put together under the noble, like quite an, um, an impressive group of experts and thought leaders from all of those industries. 
Yeah, he was episode 34. I had him on the Fraud Fighter podcast, talked about data analytics and human trafficking and yeah. and how that data is out there and, and about the noble and, and uh, the, the work he's doing with that. Long answer to, to your question was, is, you know, what am I doing? I'm having fun with a little bit more time to do things like working with the noble and, and some other organizations on human trafficking. Um, and forced labor, and then still have the privilege, like you, of still being so associated with the law enforcement community and getting the message out, talking about their work, and hopefully adding value to their mission as well. And improve my barbecue skills. That's number three on the list. Is that real barbecue or barbecue, what they said, uh, as in you're using a grill? Real barbecue, my friend. I've got okay I because got, you know North Carolina becomes like one of the barbecue capitals of the world. I know. It's vinegar base versus the uh, tomato base. It's always a big debate. I'm a vinegar guy, not a mustard guy. <laughs> I got it. No, I got it. Okay, all right. So you're talking about the low and slow. 12-hour deals, right? I've had a variety of cookers over the years. I've got a, three of them right now, and I'm going to add another stick-built offset to my uh, inventory maybe next summer. Um, you know, and I've messed around with, like, the pellet grills, too. They're great if you don't want to send a smoker every 20 That's minutes. That's my goal. Lexington, North Carolina has probably got, probably per capita has the most barbecue restaurants out there, and I was talking to one of the you know, ones have been around for a hundred years. What would you recommend me learning how to do this? And he was, he gave me some ideas. He said, pellet smoker is actually not a bad way of going. Yeah. And I was like, I'll take your advice. No, it's a, it's a good middle ground between feeding a fire every hour. Yeah. You got to monitor for like 12 hours or 10 hours. Plus there's an art in building yeah. and maintaining a fire that takes years to get good at. So, now, yeah. Derek, I will tell you this much. If you are interested in learning the skill of barbecue. There is a class for two days here in North Carolina, in the mountains, in the middle part, and then on the coast. For two days, they bring in the barbecue experts and they talk all about the pig, the fish, the chicken. They go, the desserts, they go over everything. And your job is to do nothing but eat, drink, and have Learned. a good time. Yes. That's all you do. And they bring in the, the people who actually are doing the work, not the guy who, who's got the latest book, right? Who's got the TV show. Now, these, these are the actual cooks who are doing the stuff. The ones who run the restaurants. It's on my bucket list. So it's, something to think about. Yeah, send me a link if you think about it. I will send you a link in just a minute. There's a guy I watch. He has a podcast as well. His name is Malcolm Reed. His company is How to Barbecue Right, and he does YouTube videos. The barbecue restaurant extraordinaire over here has been around for 100 years. We do it the old-fashioned way. He was telling me, whoever's got that restaurant in Austin, I can't think of his name, some oh, big barbecue uh, restaurant. Franklin. Yes, yes. He said, get yourself a pellet smoker. He said, whatever Franklin does. He said, he said, first of all, I said, go to YouTube. It's like, all right. I said, I said, Craven, I said, there's like a thousand YouTube videos. Don't th tell me who. He goes, Aaron Franklin, get a pellet smoker. Really? He goes, yeah, it gets like 85, 90% there. Hmm. Oh, okay. I mean, that's what I want to know. I, I mean, I don't, I don't need to do it hundred percent. I don't want to be an A plus, but give me an A on my barbecuing skills. That's what I want. What book or books have changed your life or thinking? So a friend of mine at work had turned me on to a book called The Leadership Challenge by Kuzis and Posner. And this was probably 12, 13 years ago. And I read it. Leadership books, sometimes they can be a little tedious. It immediately resonated with me because it wasn't just based on like the theory and, and kind of the, the academic side. It was really practical in terms of 
the research that they had done for years in high-performing organizations. And they took all that research and they boiled it down to five things that leaders needed to focus on. It spoke to me for in the law enforcement sense as well. That wasn't the focus. Their whole book was about five things. And it was model the way, inspire a shared vision, challenge the process, encourage the heart, and enable others. And those were the five themes that they had boiled down from 20 years of research of thousands of companies and organizations, government, non-government, private, commercial sector around the world. I used it for years. In fact, I bought a bunch of books and I used to give them to anybody that I had promoted into a leadership position and just say, hey, this book made a lot of sense to me. Let me know what you think. And used to use it to kind of do some leadership training and seminars in an informal way and mentoring. Share something that you've purchased in the last 12 months, less than $100 now that you enjoyed or made your job easier. If it's good enough for Derek Banner, it's good enough for the world. What would that be? That's easy. I bought a new thermometer for my smoker that is called the meter and it's groundbreaking technology. It's one little device, wireless, that communicates via Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and it has both the ambient temperature on one end of your cooker and then the temperature of whatever you're cooking and then it goes to an app on your phone and the thing is like it monitors your whole cook and your session. You can log it and you can save it. If you're really studying fire management and temperature management, then you can use that. I, I don't get that involved. Since that's kind of like my hobby and my therapy, I uh, I love that thing. For those who don't know about good barbecue cooking, there has to be a constant temperature over a long period of time. So imagine you're, you may have to add more wood. You, you may have to take wood. It's one of those deals where it's an art and not a science, but you have to monitor that temperature constantly in order to get it just right. If you had to do something else, if you get fired today, what would you be doing other than a barbecue cook? Yeah, well, everyone knows opening your own restaurant is not a good idea in most cases. If you look, just look at the statistics of uh, the success and failure rate. Plus, I'm not a, a chef anyway. But, you know, I've always had a passion for cars and the automobile industry. My family had a car dealership and it was my first job. And I'm just a car automobile fanatic. I always thought it would be fun to work in that industry someday. Pretty off the, the beaten path from what I've done and what I'm doing today, but I always thought it'd be fun to like manage a, like a, a car dealership enterprise or something. I've probably wasted a lot of money over over my my 30 years and as a driver, like buying and selling cars, but I love them. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, and thank you so much for spending about three decades of your life in federal law enforcement and. Uh, your service to your country. I really do appreciate it. And, and good luck to you in uh, TRSS as well as your barbecuing skills. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thanks, Robert. You know, the really, it was an honor to, to serve with so many tremendous people over the 30 years. And I miss them. I miss being part of the day to day. But it's nice that, that you've got this podcast going to 
bring diverse folks together to share stories on different aspects of law enforcement. And one of the biggest challenges for law enforcement was the public doesn't always understand what they're doing. Um, yeah. They see a, a 30 second byline on cable news or they see a, a blip of something of a video or a story. What they don't see is the months and years and number of people that sacrificed a lot to bring these things to, to light. So I'm glad you're in a position to, to help tell those stories. Well, it's my pleasure. 